Good morning, everybody. Uh, morning to you uh, on Zoom. Great to have you with us. Uh, we're going to think about Third John together. Uh, it's a little book, but before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send out your light and truth and that you would let them lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love the Bible. I hope you do too. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it's a very human book. Now, we believe that God is the ultimate author. Uh, God, it's, it's God's word, but God used people. Uh, isn't that wonderful? God can use you. How about that? No, I meet people every now and again who say, oh, I can't do much. Well, they're just the, just the kind of people that God likes to use. And the Bible has much that's just deeply human in it. And uh, I think this, uh, what I've read is that this makes it unique amongst the world's religious books. And so we've, we've been introduced to five people today, just regular people, ordinary folks, or one of them's an apostle, but he's just flesh and blood. They didn't walk around with halos over their head. They wore regular clothes, spoke regular language, had to eat and drink and lie down when they got a bit tired, all the rest of it. But there's some people who are doing well and there's one in particular who's doing great harm and his name's been recorded for all time as an example of what not to do. And so over the last couple of weeks we've been looking at three little books that sometimes get neglected because they're little and because they're a little bit odd. So Philemon's addressed to a man who had a runaway slave. Nathan preached about that last week. Well, this one here is just this little book about difficulties in a church. Imagine that, a church having difficulties. <laughs> this book, it's like a little snapshot. Have you heard of Pompeii in Italy? Uh, Pompeii's only famous to us these days because one day it got smothered by the outpourings of the volcano called Vesuvius. And what that means for us today, and, and there's still archaeologists are still digging it up, but the everyday goings-on of a typical Roman small city were frozen in time. And they've uncovered dogs that were just killed stone dead in the street, lying right where they were. And so we know a little bit about the pet-keeping habits of the people of Pompeii. But people just going about their everyday events were just struck dead. And they've dug these things out and they've got beautifully preserved Roman houses, even down to the graffiti that was scratched on their walls. One day was frozen forever. Now what we've got here is a little bit like that, except it's not a volcanic eruption that caused this, but a situation in a church that needed to be addressed. And so a man who identifies himself as the elder and who church history tells us is none other than the apostle of Jesus known as John, has written to address that, and frozen in time, we see the activities of five different people, and we learn lessons that help us as we try to be obedient to the Lord Jesus with the call that he's put on our lives. Now here's a challenge and a question. Are you a Christian? I hope you are, right? And if you're not, please talk to me later, right? Or if you're not sure... But how did you become a Christian? Well, pretty clearly, someone told you something and you said, I agree. 
and you put your trust in the message that comes to us from the Bible. But it always involves hearing and then responding. But it takes someone to tell you something that you can respond to. Now, across all the centuries of Christian history, there have been threats to the accurate transmission of that message which you've responded to. And so we need to be grateful to God that he raised up the man called John to write this letter to address these people because John was addressing a real threat to the successful transmission of the Christian message. John's an old man by the time he writes this and he knows that he's the last of the apostles still to be alive. And so he's got a special duty to pass on the message accurately and to see that it's held on to and not changed or diluted or disposed of. And that's what he's talking about in these words that Hans read to us. Now John's got a particular interest in a number of different things. So if you read First John, I did during the week, five chapters, not a very long book, um, some of the things that John particularly is concerned about is truth, which means believing what is true, what is accurate, what accords to the facts. So he wants people to not only believe the truth, but he says to walk in it, which means to live your life conformed to things that are true. And so that leads us to the next one. He's very big on obedience. And so he says if you've believed the truth, you need to obey it. You can't just sort of put it in on the shelf and say, I'll get around to that one day. If you know the truth, you need to do it. You need to obey it. But then he goes on. And he talks a lot about love. Now, if you look at Third John, just cast your eyes down it, see how often he repeats the word love and truth or love and beloved. Love is very important to him. Now, those three things, truth, obedience and love, they're tests for what John says is the mark of a genuine follower of Jesus. If you've not got any concern for truth, if you don't obey the truth, And if you don't obey the truth in a life that's characterised by love, John says, you've got a lot to be concerned about because that's the thing that we look for. They're the three factors that are are markers of a person that's genuinely following Jesus. Truth, obedience and love. In 1 John and in 2 John, he uses the term antichrist. Because he has to identify that there's people who are associated with the church or who are not that far away who are causing difficulty, which is causing people to stumble. And he says anyone who is opposed to the work of Christ is an antichrist. We don't get that word in 3 John, but we do learn about an antichrist, even though he's not called it. His name is Diotrephes, because he is opposed to Christ. He thinks... He's a follower of Jesus. He thinks he's a leader in the church. But John calls him out and says, if I come to you, I'm going to have to confront him. Because he's harming the gospel and he represents a serious threat to the transmission that we've depended on. I remember when I gave my heart to the Lord Jesus, I remember the man who made the challenge that I responded to back in 1968 but someone told him and someone told them and someone told them and it goes all the way back to the apostles doesn't it 
So that's the threat that John's addressing. So let's have a look at it together. Please keep it open. I've sent an outline if you want to follow that along. Um, But we get five examples of the early church in action here. And in verses 1 to 4... Uh, verses, yeah, verses 1 to 4, we see uh, John and Gaius. So John doesn't identify himself by name, he just calls himself the elder. Um, well, there's a lesson for a start, isn't it? John could have said, John, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who followed him around, the last male to be left at the cross. He could have big-noted himself, couldn't he? Some Christians do that. When you read their bio, when you read their biography, you know, if you go to a conference, now usually the conferences I go to, they're addressed by humble people. Uh, but, but sometimes you'll see boastful Christians. John is not one of them, and neither should we be. He just calls himself the elder, which means he's positioning himself not as a, a superstar Christian, but just a regular one. A leader, no doubt, but just a regular Christian. He could have pulled rank, he didn't. What about Gaius? Uh, We don't know anything about him. All we know is that Gaius was probably about the most popular Roman boy's name back in those days. So he's just a regular citizen too. But um, John loves him in a Christian way because he calls him beloved in verse 2. And then he has a, a prayer or a wish. It's a wish prayer. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. That's pretty good, isn't it? Do you wish that for other believers? Or are you a little bit happy when they experience difficulties? Well, I'm going through some grim times. I wish somebody else was too, right? The Germans have a word for that. It's called Schadenfreude, where you take a little bit of pleasure out of the sufferings of others. That's not Christian. That's thoroughly worldly. It's very natural. But it's, unbelie- it, it, it's, it's, it's something we've got to turn from. John wants people to go well. Now, we, we, we ask that question, don't we, sometimes? How are you going, Tony? Right? We all know what that means. Right? You're travelling well? That's what John wishes for Gaius, that he'll be travelling well in his soul. Now, when I think of soul, what do you think of when you think of soul? The sort of spooky, spiritual sort of ghostly part I don't know uh, soul music what does soul music do it's all about the emotions that's not what John means John means your life um, he uses the same word in first John chapter 3 uh, verse 16 and he says by this we know love that he laid down his life for us life there the word that he uses is exactly the same as the word for soul in third John so John wants every aspect of Gaius's life to be functioning well and that's what he prays for Now, is that the sort of thing you pray for for other people? We should learn how to pray from the Bible. That's what John wants for Gaius. I hope everything about your life is proceeding well. And then he says in verse 3, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. As indeed you're walking in the truth. Here's something else. Here's another good example. John says he has no greater joy than to know that his children are walking in the truth and he doesn't mean children by birth he means his spiritual offspring because John has led people to Christ through his preaching and he cares about their progress right and he says he has no greater joy than knowing that the souls of those he's been responsible for are traveling well there's an example isn't it person who really cares now does that sound like something that 
we should be modelling ourselves on. That kind of care and concern for the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters. We get a third example in verses 5 to 8, and that's Gaius and the brothers. And what we see here is truth, which John says is good, and obedience and love, all three of John's big concerns, we see them in action. So again, verse 5, John addresses Gaius, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love for the church. Now, we don't know who these brothers are. We can work out a little bit. They're they're travelling evangelists. They've probably gone from where John is to the church that John's writing to and they've come back to John and they've told good stories about the church, particularly Gaius. They've also brought back bad news about Diotrephes, which we'll get to in a moment. But these brothers have have gone out. Uh, In verse 7, we're told they've gone out for the sake of the name, in other words, the name of Jesus. They're travelling ministers taking the good news that's found in the name of Jesus to other people to hear about it and so they brought back a good report Uh, the good report is that Gaius has welcomed them now we find later on that Diotrephes did the very reverse but Gaius has welcomed them and John says it's a faithful thing you do even though these people were strangers now hospitality was one of the big markers of genuine Christian life in those earliest days Opening your home to people, even if you didn't know them, if they were there for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, William Barclay says that Christianity was the faith of the open heart and the open door. Welcome, come on in. You're here for Jesus, you've got a place in my house. That's how hospitality works. They've said, as they've gone back to John, Gaius welcomed us. And so John goes on and commends him he says you'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God so he hasn't just welcomed them he sent them on their way so that they can get to the next stop on their itinerary he sent them on their way in a manner worthy of God now stop and think about that for a moment what would anything look like if it was done worthily of God what would that look like we'd start to think well what's God ever done for us oh he sent his son to die on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and we could know peace with God now and eternal life to come what's God ever done for us so how can we reflect that in the way that we treat his people send them on their way in a manner worthy of God now we've just heard I had no idea that David and Taryn were going to make their presence known among us by video today but wasn't that timely because we've sent them on their way are we continuing to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God they've gone out from among us just like these traveling tellers of the gospel that John's writing about they've gone out from among us to take the good news of Jesus first to France and then to Niger But will we continue in our support for them? Support by way of prayer and encouragement, but financial. Are we sending them on their way in a manner worthy of God? Now, I'll tell you, 
One of the biggest challenges for long-term vocational ministries is that the churches that send them very often forget them. Um, I'm trusting that Mafra Community Church will be a different kind of church in that way. But I have heard from people that have gone out to another nation to share the good news of Jesus that the longer they stay, the stranger they feel at home. (coughs) Fashions change. Political leaders come and go. Our lives go on and they come back and feel quite separate. What efforts will we make to make sure that that's not David and Taryn, Mike and Noah and Caleb's experience? It's, it's something we'll need to commit ourselves to. Wouldn't it be terrible if someone known to the prices came to church and then said to them, you weren't prayed for? Wouldn't that be terrible? Is that the least we can do? This is a challenge for us as a church. They've gone out from among us. Will we send them on their way? in a manner worthy of God because they've gone out for the sake of the name and notice in verse 7 accepting nothing from the Gentiles nothing from the pagans that is a Christian principle now I I can't remember who said it it might have been Hudson Taylor the great missionary statesman to China but he had a saying I think it was Hudson Taylor he said the Lord's work done in the Lord's way will never lack the Lord's supply The Lord's work done in the Lord's way will never lack the Lord's supply. My own belief is that Christian organisations should not accept government grants. That's my belief. I've been at close quarters with Christian organisations that have. I'm not talking about schools, I'm talking about churches and, and genuine evangelistic ministries. I think there is an inevitable dilution of your commitment to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified if you start taking government money. Because government money never comes without strings attached. And so I have a feeling, in fact a conviction, that if we're talking genuine gospel outreach, Christians should pay for it. Because we can't expect the pagans to. We can't expect people that are not believers to finance our outreach. Uh, And so that means that Christians need to be generous to see that the gospel doesn't stop with us. The gospel's reached us, hasn't it? If we won't sponsor the next generation of believers, we're effectively saying it will stop with us. So they took nothing from the pagans, nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, in verse 8, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Not everyone can go to Africa. There's a range of reasons why you will not be in Africa necessarily. But you can be there in spirit with your prayers and you can be fellow workers for the truth with your generosity. And it's as though you are there. Your circumstances may not permit you to leave Mafra to go to share the gospel elsewhere, but you can be a fellow worker for the truth, according to the language of 3 John chapter 8, verse, verse 8. So Gaius has passed the three tests, truth, obedience and love. He's got the commendation of John the Apostle for that, unlike Diotrephes. And so we move to verses 9 to 10. And he's example four. 
We've had three examples so far. John, Gaius, the brothers. Now we get to the fourth of our five examples. Diotrephes, who David Jackman calls the Christian fraud. Now have a look at these words because these are disturbing and somewhat chilling. I've written something to the church, verse 9. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. Now what we know about Diotrephes is he was a big head. He loved to be first. Uh, one of the older versions says he desires the preeminence. Does that sound like a, a good character quality? Imagine having that on your gravestone. Diotroph- he lies Diotrephes. He loved to be first. Doesn't sound good, does it? Remember what Jesus said? In the kingdom, the first will be last. And the last will be first. He was pinning his hopes on something that Jesus condemned. And so John has to call him out. And that's a task of Christian leadership every now and again because this man is a threat to the gospel. He's a threat to the stability of the church. And he's rejecting the message that's been brought by these brothers. Now we live in a world that says, oh, we mustn't judge. But Jesus says, by their fruit you'll know them. And he says, sometimes... There'll be sheep in wolves' clothing. Or wolves in sheep's clothing. This is one of them. Right here. And so John can't leave it unchallenged. He's got to do something about it because this is putting at risk the transmission of the gospel that we've depended on. Now, we don't know who he was. He was probably an elder in the church. He was no doubt an influential member of the congregation. Um, And unfortunately... remembering that this is a snapshot of the church unfortunately people like Diotrephes have found their way into churches ever since now if ever you've been in a church where there has been a power broker someone who just through force of personality had to be obeyed there's all sorts of ways that it happens but I've seen it at close quarters and it's ugly you know humans are fascinating creatures aren't we Uh, I'm a little bit of a student of human nature, not in a psychological sort of textbook kind of way, but being a teacher, you get to look at all sorts of different people. And sometimes when I'm walking down the street, I see a group of school kids walking down, and it's always interesting to see the one who's in the middle of the group, because they're the boss. No one ever said, oh, when we walk down the street, make sure you're in the middle. That's the way it always works out. So left to their own devices, human organisations, there'll always be some who force their way to the top through force of personality, through some personal characteristic. Christian churches should be places where yeah, we need leaders, no question of that, but leaders need to express their leadership through service, not through bullying. Now, the world has chief executive officers, CEOs, The church should not be led by a CEO. Jesus is our shepherd. 
Those who lead churches need to serve as shepherds, people who lead, feed and protect. But Jesus says he shepherds from among the flock. You'll see that in Luke, in Luke chapter 23. What did Jesus do on the night that he was betrayed? He washed the disciples' feet. He took the lowest place. He says, I've set you an example that you should follow. Don't lord it over the, the, the flock. Diotrephes lorded it over the flock because he loved to be first. Jesus says, take the lower place, just like he did. You can't get lower than dying on a cross. And that's the example that we should follow. But Diotrephes is not completely useless because he serves as a bad example. So he gives us a mirror that we can look at and say we're not going to be like that. We're not going to be one of these ones who elbows everybody out of the way as they clamber to the top of the heap in church. And so Karen Jobes in her commentary on these verses has a number of questions for Christian leaders and they are these. Does my way of being in the church foster community or destroy it? That's a question for everyone, not just leaders. Does my way of being in church foster community or destroy it? Question two, do I equate leadership with control? Question three, am I hospitable to everyone or am I exclusive about whom I extend myself to because Diotrephes knocked back the people who'd come for the sake of the name? Do I have my ego wrapped around every activity, meeting and issue? Do I always have to be right? I worked out some years ago, took me a while to get there, but by virtue of the fact that I'm a sinner, I can't be right on everything. My problem is I just don't know what I'm wrong on. But you, you're no different. Now I need people lovingly to tap me on the shoulder or put their arm around me and say, Steve, you got that wrong. And if I think they've got my best interests at heart, I'll probably listen. Right? Because I can't be right on everything. But I need someone else to help me work out what I'm wrong on. And so do you. So Christian leadership should be modelled on Jesus' example, not the CEO, not the boss, not the general, not the way the world looks at it. Christian leadership should never express itself in loving to be first. But then we finish with a good example. Example number five in verses 11 to 12. Uh, Gaius is told to imitate what's good, be like Demetrius, not like Diotrephes. And so have a look at verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony... And you know that our testimony is true. So our behaviour actually shows what's going on inside. Behaviour is a a revealer of our character. Uh, Demetrius was probably the carrier of this letter uh, from John to the church of which Gaius was a leader. He's John's representative. He's the sort of person that Diotrephes has refused. Now Jesus says, when you welcome anyone in my name, what do you do? You welcome me. What Diotrephes is doing by refusing someone who's come on behalf of an apostle is actually refusing Christ. That's what makes this so serious. Now for us, 
there's a real implication here because if we refuse the message written by an apostle we're refusing Jesus we have the the witness of John the apostle in these words we have the witness of Peter and James and Paul the apostle if we refuse those words we're refusing Jesus that's how serious it is but Demetrius has taken the word and 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 he's come back with a good report um, but he's, he's also a person who's well spoken of by the truth so that means that he's his manner of life is in accord with the truth of God which has been revealed in Christ and so we come to the end and John finishes with a closing blessing in verses 13 to 15 and what he wants for them is Christ's peace so verse 13 I had much to write to you but I would rather not write with pen and ink I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face now can I just say a little word there Um, those weeks when I send a video down I would much rather be here but I send a video because I can't be so I, I, know a, I, I know a little of what he's talking about, but isn't it good that we can meet again? Hans has referred to it several times, and it's just good to be together, isn't it? We'll talk face to face, says John. Notice how much he loves them, the tender affection that comes across in these words. And what does he want for them? Verse 15, peace be to you. Peace. What's Peace. I remember back in the 60s, there was a lot of talk about peace back in those days. And you know, it meant nothing, really. Well, it meant stop the war. But peace is much more than just stopping fighting. God's peace, which was the, the way the Jews used to greet each other, it's an Old Testament word that's been taken into the New Testament. It's a little bit like what John wishes for Gaius at the beginning that all may go well with your soul. When everything's going well for our soul, for our whole life, that's peace. And you see, final peace will only be accomplished when the Lord Jesus returns and when the swords are turned into plowshares. That's when peace will come finally and completely. But in the meantime, John wants for peace to rule in the Christian gathering. And so if John was to talk to Mafra, he'd say, I want peace among you people gathered for the name of Jesus here today and not just today but tomorrow and every day let peace be the characteristic not just absence of conflict but the way everything comes together in a in a wonderful way that is an anticipation a little hint a small taste of the peace that we will one day enjoy eternally that's what should be alive and active among Christian gatherings that's why John had to write because Diotrephes is an opponent of peace but our gathering is supposed to be a window on heaven for anybody who comes and looks at it and so that's why it's a tragedy when Christians fight because the world fights and if Christians do that then we know better than they are and we need to be giving a window on what life looks like when Christ the King is truly crowned and reigning. Does that sound important? Does it sound achievable? Well, it's a command. But that's what John wishes. He wants the peace of Christ to rule amongst them. Now, who does that start with? You. You. 
there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. That's a song we used to sing. It starts when you decide that I will express the Lordship of Christ by a determination to do all I can to live at peace with others. Romans 12, 18 says, As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We've all of us got a part to play. If you wait until you see enough signs from another person, oh yes, they're making their effort, now I'll reciprocate, you'll never be impressed enough to start. It's got to start with you. Don't wait, just get on with it. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's what Jesus wanted. He says, peace I leave with you. Peace like my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, let not your hearts be troubled. So we've got a glimpse here of an early church, of the sort of people that made up the earliest assemblies or congregations of, of believers, the people that have held the faith of Jesus and passed it on so people like us can receive it. It's a glimpse of how things ought to be and it's a worrying glimpse of how things can be and shouldn't be. So we've got to ask ourselves, who are we, who are we most like here? Are we like the humble John who doesn't pull rank, who wants to serve and who is clearly a man who loves the people and is very concerned for their well-being? Are we like Gaius who is commended for sending the brothers on their way in a manner worthy of God? Are we like the brothers who are courageous enough to go out for the sake of the name? Are we like Demetrius who is well spoken of by everyone and by the truth itself? Are we like Diotrephes who love to have our own way? Five examples, five choices. What will Mafra Community Church be like? What would John write if he wrote to us? Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Third John. We thank you for your servant, the Apostle John. We thank you for sparing him long enough to write these wonderful words. And we ask now that you would move in us by your Holy Spirit to be people committed to the truth and living it out in obedience, an obedience which is characterised by love for you and love for everyone. So please help us be concerned for each other, that we're all living at peace, that things are going well with each other's souls. Help us to have that loving personal concern that we see evidenced here. And we pray that you would so move among us by your spirit for the glory of your son that others would see that we love you and that we love each other and would be drawn to our, our congregation. We pray all these things uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.